Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hey, spooktacular people. This is Stephen Pappas, and I'm an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast. This episode is entirely listener-supported. If you'd like to support the show, check out the Support the Show tab at historygoesbump.com. <laughs> Did y'all hear that? I'm sure it's nothing. Okay, here's the thing. We're going to need to split up, and I know that's not usually a good idea, but I really don't think that there'll be any sort of problem. So I'm going to go over here, and I'll just... Steven? Steven, are you there? Uh, Steven? Denise, cue the music, quick. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 241st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On this episode, we are bringing you the Baker Mansion, which is located in Altoona, Pennsylvania. This was suggested to us by our listener, Tiffany Delosier, and she's going to be joining us in just a moment. She's been to this location and absolutely loves it, and she's going to share her knowledge about it with us. Before we get into that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Mary. Hey, Mary. Wendy. Hi, Wendy. Maggie. Hey, Maggie. Spencer. Hello, Spencer. Marie-Anne. Hey, Marie-Anne. Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Eileen. Hello, Eileen. Kaylee, who spells her name with an L-E-E at the end. Hey, Kaylee with the L-E-E. Madash. Hey, Madash. Olga. Hi, Olga. Karen. Hi, Karen. And Ashley, who ends her name with an I-G-H. Hello, Ashley with an I-G-H at the end. And now, this moment, Naughty. After the Second World War, the Filipinos People Army that had fought against the Japanese started adopting communist ideals and began a peasant rebellion called the Huk Balahap Rebellion against wealthy Manilian Filipinos who'd worked with the Japanese. The United States considered the Philippines an asset and they didn't want this communist rebellion to succeed. So the CIA sent one of their top men, Edward Lansdale, to the Philippines to quash the rebellion. Lansdale's favorite tactic was psychological warfare, and he decided to use some of the cultural folklore to his advantage. As we learned in our Filipino Legends episode, one of the things that the people here fear is the Aswang, which is a vampire creature. A unit of the Hakbalahap rebels had positioned themselves on a very strategic hill, and it was imperative to get them removed from that advantage. Lansdale ordered several of his men to grab one of the rebels at the back of the group. They then punctured the man's neck in two places and hung him upside down until the blood had drained from the body. They threw the man back into the pathway so that when several of the rebels returned to find their comrade, they ran across his lifeless corpse and discovered the marks and that he had been drained of blood. They were terrified and reported back to their group. 
the rebels fled their hilltop position, losing their advantage. Lansdale used other tactics like painting all-seeing eyes on homes and flying aircraft low. The rebellion ended in 1954, and Lansdale's fake vampire attack was credited with playing a large part in the success. And that certainly is odd. You're not afraid of a little ghost, are you? And now, This Month in History. In the month of January, on the 3rd in 1924, British Egyptologist Howard Carter found the sarcophagus of Tutankhamun in the Valley of the Kings near Luxor. Carter had searched for the tomb of King Tut for several years and found the entrance to it in November of 1922. His crews had been digging around ancient stone huts that had housed workers when they discovered a stair. This stair proved to be a full staircase that led down to a sealed tomb door that was marked in a way that indicated it was a royal tomb. Carter reached the inner door and drilled a hole through which he could see the treasure of King Tut. It would take him over a year of excavation to finally find the body of King Tut in his sarcophagus. He had died at the age of 19. The treasures and sarcophagus are usually on permanent display at the Cairo Museum in Egypt, but the collection has regularly traveled the world on exhibition. The Baker family moved to Altoona, Pennsylvania in the 1830s and grew a successful iron-making business. Elias was an ambitious man who ruled his family with an iron fist that resulted in him alienating his first son and driving his daughter to dedicating herself to a spinster life. He built the family a mansion in Altoona known as the Baker Mansion. The home remained with the family for decades and most of them died in the house. Today there are claims that this historic home houses more than just a museum. The spirits of the family seem to have decided to stay in the afterlife. Join us and our listener, Tiffany Delosier, as we discuss the history and hauntings of the Baker Mansion. Well, we want to welcome our listener, Tiffany Delosier. She suggested to us Baker Mansion, and when she did that, she sent us a whole bunch of research that she had done on it as well. And I said, well, you have to join us on the show to talk about it. How are you, Tiffany? I'm good. Great. Well, we are very excited to have you joining us. Obviously, since you listen to the podcast and you know a little bit about this haunted location, you must be a little bit into the paranormal. What got you interested in it? Actually, the funny thing is, is I went to um, the elementary school that's named after the Iron Master, Elias Baker. And in third grade, they send you, during Halloween, they send you to Baker Mansion for their ghost tour. And that's basically kind of what got the whole being interested in a lot of places and historical locations at the same time. Wow, well, that's a cool place to be sent off to, to go on a ghost tour. I would have loved that. Yeah, it's like, I'd say maybe a 10-minute walk from my elementary school to the actual building itself. Oh, very cool. So have you had any ghostly or unexplained experiences of your own? As far as I could tell, I've had a bunch, but kind of one of the things depends on who I actually talk to. I say, oh, no, you're imagining it, or I actually say, oh, maybe you saw something. <laughs> like, um, you know, like a couple of years ago, I was living with my boyfriend and his mom and his siblings at their house. This is like two or three years before we moved to where we're at now. 
my boyfriend wasn't isn't allowed to smoke at the house at the time. So he'd have to go out and make the back porch and stand there and smoke, and I'd go out and stand there and talk to him. Well, one night I came out of the bathroom, and where the bathroom was at, at the old house we lived at, you could kind of see, like, the back door. And the one day I came out, I saw him go out, look out the back window, and he's not standing there. Go upstairs, ask him, you know, hey, did you go outside to smoke? And maybe I thought, all right, I just saw him or something. Just no, I've been upstairs the whole time. Why? Who'd you see? I think, well, I thought I saw you. And the only explanation he had was his dad had unfortunately passed away, I'd say, 10 or more years before we got together. Ever since his dad passed away, the families thought they heard him banging around the house because it was unfinished projects he had. And his dad was actually diabetic. He'd been diabetic from a young age. It just progressively got worse as he got older. So he thought since his dad had looked like him when he was a teenager that I was seeing his dad instead of seeing him or seeing something, a shadow or something. Oh, wow. That's definitely possible. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was hoping it was. I was hoping it was his dad because there's a lot of other stuff, like a long list of stories his family's had of stuff they've seen or heard in that house. Yeah, you would definitely want it to be something you're more familiar with than something that you're not as familiar with. Baker Mansion that you suggested to us is located in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and this is a city that we've never been to. Would you tell us a little bit about it? It actually started not like as a city. It was just like farm space and that. And Iroquois Confederacy is called different things by different people. The French called the Iroquois lead the British called it the Five Nations. They lived, uh, they lived up around this area. We're really friendly, a lot of them, to the settlers, so build stockades and forts to protect themselves. Around 1849 is when the city kind of got started. There was a farmer named uh, David Robinson, and the Pennsylvania Railroad Company in 1849 bought his farmstead for about $11,000 back in that time. That's so that a lot of money. A bit of money. Yeah. yeah, that was so that they could build a staging area for the trains that had to come up over the Alleghenies so that if they broke down or needed to repair something, they had somewhere to repair them. So obviously, railroaders are going to move in. So Altoona is basically an old railroad town. I'm not really sure how Altoona got its name because no. Family, nobody's really sure. They think either it was named after a German town that doesn't exist. It's part of Hamburg now. That I'm assuming it's pronounced Altoona, but it dropped the one O, and that that's how they got the name. And then another theory is that somebody came up with the name Altoona from the Cherokee word Alatuna, which is supposed to mean Highland of Great Worth. Normally, there's a statue. Um, can't think of who built it, but there's a statue. In our downtown area, that has a uh, Indian chief on a piece of rail line. And I think that's actually the plaque. When you read I think that's actually what tells you that that's how Tuna got its name is from Alatuna. In 1854, we actually built the help with transit uh, the time to get goods and people back and forth from one place to another. It's way up high on this mountain. It's called um, the Horseshoe Curve. And if you ever go up, you'll kind of wonder how they made it because it's on like this steep looking cliff that was made so that it would cut time down from going from like Pittsburgh to Philadelphia and back 
And it actually cut it down from three days of travel to 15 because the trains didn't have to go up over the mountains anymore. So this was the horseshoe curve? This was part of the railway? Yeah, they they, sold it. they wanted to try to figure out a different way, you know, an easier way because they would have to wait like three days or more for trains to get up over the mountain. And that's only if they didn't break down. So they built the horseshoe curve to basically go around like the mountain a shorter distance so that it would cut down on time and they were getting stuff there like in a day. Oh, that's much better to do it in one day or less than three days. The only bad thing about it is is that it is kind of dangerous. I think I actually heard that the trains have to slow down because it's a literal curve and if they go too fast, it will derail. And there has been, I have to see if I can ever find but there have been a few wrecks, I believe, on that curve. I don't doubt it because we've seen in our modern era, it seems like it's the curves that get the trains every time. And I can only imagine back in the 1800s and up on a cliff, I would be shocked if they didn't have a train that derailed at some point up there. Oh, what a horrible place to derail. Oh, yeah, because I think there was actually, I can't think of the name of the circus, but there was a circus that apparently derailed up there and it killed like some of the animals and some of the workers and that but the animals that survived obviously got scared and ran off and they had to try to gather up all these animals hello hello yes i'm down here in the rabbit hole and i've brought you with me well you guys know i had to go down that rabbit hole i had to know more about this circus train crash Apparently, the Walter L. Main Circus Train crashed on Memorial Day in 1893. They had elephants, lions, tigers, crocodiles, pythons, horses, and a gorilla who was named the Manslayer all on this train. And this crash caused it to plummet down that 30-foot high embankment, and it was a devastating rail car pileup. Several of the animals did escape that were not killed. That story has become a part of town lore And supposedly, a mass grave was dug for all of these dead circus animals. But they don't know where it was. But they say that bones, horseshoes, lion cage locks, and railroad spikes have turned up every time they've built a new home that is near the site there. So some researchers made an attempt to see if they could find it. They weren't able to find anything. There's a local historian named Paula Zitzler, and she teaches at Penn State Altoona, she published a book that's called Unscheduled Stop, The Town of Tyrone and the Wreck of Walter L. Main's Circus Train. And Zitzler and a group of students from Indiana University of Pennsylvania have gone out to the accident site several times to see if they could find anything. And they used ground-penetrating radar, see if they could find any kind of burial there. They scanned three acres of private property. And they found some intriguing anomalies with a lower metal content than the surrounding soil, but there was bad weather and they weren't able to really dig a large pit to find out. And any samples that they grabbed were inconclusive. So it's a big mystery where this mass grave probably is for all of these circus animals. Five people were also killed in the accident. Discovery News says of it, while 17 car coal trains could manage the steep mountainside with just one locomotive, many of the 17 cars on the Walter L. Main Circus train were twice as long as the average coal car. The engineers wired ahead to request more braking power, but were denied. As they guided the train down the slope, it quickly picked up speed and couldn't be stopped. The locomotive at the front made it around the curve, but the cars behind it flew off the tracks. 
So you could just imagine what a visual that must have been. You've got the locomotive all the way around, and then it was just like a, you know, when you we used to play crack the whip as kids, you just imagine all of those cars just went flying off like that. This happened near Hiram Friday's farm, and his daughter reportedly was milking a cow a few days after the wreck, and a Bengal tiger came in and attacked and killed that cow. They called in a bear hunter to go out and see if he could find the tiger in the woods and shoot it. And he did manage to do that. And they say that the beast's skull hangs in a local hunting club. The local papers there reported sightings of exotic animals for months and even years after the crash. One of those reports was that in the nearby town of Warriorsmark, people on their way to church one Sunday morning said that they saw three kangaroos hopping across the street. I thought that that was just fascinating, and thanks for coming down that rabbit hole with me. Something interesting, when you sent uh, over your research, I had no idea that Altoona had such a key part during the Civil War, because we don't hear about any battles happening there, but something major happened there. Yeah, there was actually, I didn't know this until I saw the plaque, because that's all that's left to commemorate this event. There was a basically a meeting. It was called the War Governors Conference, and it was actually hosted by Governor the Governor of Pennsylvania, Andrew Gray Curtin, at the Logan House Hotel. And one of the reasons I heard was because they felt Altoona was one of the safer places to be. And basically, it was just thirteen governors of the Union states got together for about two days. And they sat down and they discussed if they were going to support the Emancipation Proclamation and they were going to decide if General McLennan was even going to get the same command of the Army of the Potomac. Not too long after that, around the time uh, Lincoln was getting ready to the Gettysburg Address, the Logan House Hotel was actually where David Wells decided he was going to hold a meeting to plan everything out for the Gettysburg Cemetery, the you know, the burials and who was gonna be there and the speeches and everything. Very cool. And I also found out apparently when the roads was looking into all of that, since unfortunately the our post office sits there now, so you can't even go in to ask anybody at the hotel about this history. They have to look it up online. Apparently Somebody found there was like a note or a message to one of his commanders from from General Lee, and apparently Altoona was actually on a list of potential targets that he wanted to go after if he had won at Gettysburg. Oh, Oh, so you guys are glad that he didn't manage to win. (laughs) Yeah, I read that. I was like, well, at least we won at Gettysburg. Because Altoona, I don't think Altoona wasn't that. I only think we were that big back during the Civil War. So we probably would have had worse time in Gettysburg. Yeah, no kidding. So now the post office is where the Logan House Hotel had been. Yeah, well, it's the post office. From what I can tell from pictures I've seen of it, it looks like it's the post, our post office. And we have a bus stop, a well, bus slash train stop. And it looks like where those two buildings are would be about where the hotel was at. Because it was about, I think I heard it was like 135 rooms or something like that. So it was a big hotel. And it was actually meant for the railroaders to stay in when their train would come for the night since they didn't really have anywhere else to stay. It was right there by train track so that the workers could get off the train, go, you know, go in the hotel and spend the night and then leave. 
the stuff that you told me about the Nazis and World War II and this horseshoe curve comes up again. Yeah, the, during World War II, I had the only way I'd be able to know, because I can't remember the exact date it was posted in the, or it was published in the, um, up in the mirror, but sometime during World War II, the Nazis kind of figured out, caught wind somehow of Altoona and found out that since we had the horseshoe curve, it was making it easier for us to send materials to build weapons and whatever else we needed. So obviously they decided, all right, horseshoe curve is going to go. They sent two Nazi, I guess you want to call them saboteurs, whatever. They weren't very good at their job because they did end up getting caught. And I think if I remember, they actually got caught because one of the people that actually wrote from Altoona, one, didn't recognize them, and two, kind of realized they weren't really speaking very good English and it sounded just too German to them. <laughs> so they got suspicious and che- like checked them out and found all this stuff they had been planning to basically destroy the horseshoe curve to slow us down for a while. Well, good. So then they weren't able to uh, destroy the horseshoe curve then. You have some really interesting stuff there in Altoona as well. I had no idea that the oldest still running wooden roller coasters there. Yeah, I thought it was the second oldest, but it's actually, I looked at, like, I went to, like, 10 different sites to see if maybe we were the second oldest, but no, we actually do have the oldest roller coaster. It's called the Leap the Dips, and I'm hoping they keep it, like, they let it still run because Lake Mont Park was located, actually shut down because they just weren't making any money. Mm-hmm. But from what I heard, the Grosser family bought it and was planning on keeping up with the park, like turning into an actual place for picnics and that, not really an amusement park. So a lot of people are actually telling them, you know, that's one of our claims to fame. They'll get rid of it today. So have you been on that roller coaster? <laughs> I wish I had been, but the line, whenever you'd get away, the line was like over an hour just to wait. And that thing does not move that fast. I think somebody said it moves 10 miles at the most when it's going. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things. They, they, they kept it all original. Well, they fixed up the wood, but they would keep it all original. So it goes like 10 miles, and I think it's like 40 feet tall. Yeah, and I'm always a little weird about getting on a, an old wooden roller coaster. I'm like, I could just see that some brackets could decide to fall apart when I'm on it. The other thing with me is... I. I mean, I like roller coasters. I'm not a big, huge fan, but there is actually a story about a um, worker that was killed by accident one day. Like, the operator didn't realize he was stolen a tractor and the coaster. Killed him, and people actually reported seeing him still working on the roller coaster up the first hill right before, you know, when it first inclines. Like, people said they see him on that hill. Like, no, I don't. I would hope it would be a heat stroke or something, but I don't want to see no dead worker on the roller coaster. (laughs) (laughs) You also have one of the oldest still operating gas stations there, too. It's actually a um, full-service gas station, which is where the worker will come out and they'll pump the gas and check your tires and all, you know, all the old movies that show you the guy cleaning the windows and talking to the people in the car. It's actually not that far from Baker Mansion. It's, oh, what was it? I think 1912 or 1914 is when it opened. Yeah, but they keep all the old etiquette that they used to always have with the gas station, so that's pretty cool. And they actually had a lot of people go to them because they're the cheapest. You'll go to Sheets and it'll be like two something and you'll go to the Rikers and it's maybe 10 or 20 cents cheaper. 
So obviously the Baker Mansion is named for the Baker family. What can you tell us about them? Elias and his wife, Hetty Baker, were from, weren't actually from the area. They were actually from Lancaster County, which was about 150 miles away. Elias was born on December 24, 1398, so he's a Christmas Eve baby. His wife, Hetty, her actual maiden name was Woods, and she was born on October 2, 1803. And the, their parents' names, because Elias' father's name was Frederick, and his mother's name was Margarita. There's going to be a little bit of a pattern because they named at least two of their kids after their parents because Hetty's parents' name was, was David and Anne. And their oldest son, who I don't know exactly when he was born, I just know he was born sometime in 1823, his name was David. So there's a little bit of a pattern because I guess back then that was some kind of a thing. You know, you pick your favorite parent and you name your kid after him. Well, I share something in common with Hetty because my parents are named David and Ann, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's how did you think about that? I was like, oh, yeah. The only clue that I could find at all as to when his birthday possibly is is when their youngest son, Sylvester, was born. He was born on October 31st, 1825. So, you know, you got a lot of Christmas Eve baby, and I get Sylvester, who's a Halloween baby. Anyway, the only hint for David's possible full birthday is he was two years old when Sylvester was born, and that's about all I could find. I couldn't even find his date of birth on his headstone. It just gives his date of death and how old he was. How interesting. So they kept track of the other two kids, but not their firstborn, which usually it's the firstborn that you really pay a lot of attention to. Yeah. Later on in life, I don't know if it was just Elias and Hetty just weren't thinking or a record got lost and they just told him, he was born in 1823, but it might have something to do with the fact that David and Elias later on didn't really get along. It was just one of those things that they just got into a fight almost all the time because Elias wanted David to take over the family business when Elias got older, and David had no interest whatsoever in uh, ironwork and stuff like that. He wanted to go off and do his own thing, and it was just a constant bickering back and forth between him and Elias. So it might have been maybe a little bit of spite on Elias' side, you know, well, he's not going to do what I want, so I'm not going to even really bother putting all this stuff down. Because from what I heard, a lot of people did not realize if Elias got angry at them, it was one of those things he would he was spiteful, like beyond spiteful. But it was normally him and Dave were always butting heads. So Elias Baker, his work was in ironwork and with furnaces and such? Yeah, he actually bought the uh, Allegheny furnace from Robert Allison. And he actually bought it with his cousin, Roland Diller. They spent, between the two of them, they spent $50,000 for it. Wow. And they bought it, and they, yeah... I don't know how much of that was Elias's half of buying it and how much of it was Diller's. Okay. But they bought it in 1835, and you can actually see, it's not the original one. I think it's the one he, Elias, later had built to replace the old one. It's basically right down the street from the Baker Mansion is actually where the furnace was at. But this property they actually bought, I mean, they, they were given about 3000 acres full of woods in that because you need the wood to make the charcoal to melt the um, material to make the 
iron. So they actually bought a good size of property and a house for um, Elias and his family to move into because Roland was just going to stay in Lancaster. They actually didn't move or start moving until April of the next year. And I'm pretty sure Hetty wasn't happy because she was about seven months pregnant with Anna. That was a 150-mile ride from Lancaster to, it was called Allegheny first, because the railroad hadn't bought it yet, and it didn't even have its name yet. So Altoona didn't even exist back then. But it was 150 miles over bumpy roads. And she and, was seven months pregnant, you said? And she was and she was seven months pregnant. Uh. So I'm pretty sure she was constantly complaining to lies that she needed to stop and rest or, you know, can you mm. at least find somewhere a little bit smoother? But, I'm sure you're right. I would be complaining. <laughs> yeah. But David actually didn't go with them because he, he was away in school. So he didn't get to go with them. So just Elias, Hetty, Sylvester, and a couple of employees and all their belongings just going to the new home. And Elias actually sent a letter to David after they got there. And he actually did, he did admit at one point that when they were just about to the house, that they had broken one of the springs for their carriage. And he mentioned somebody named Tyler, so I'm assuming it's one of their employees, actually broke one of the back wheels to the carriage and actually couldn't join them until the next day because he had to stop somewhere to get the wheel replaced. So it, that's how bad the roads were back then. They didn't get much better now. So Now, after they got to Altoona, I mean, it's not named that at the time, they had their fourth child, right? They had, well, they had Anna when they got there. They okay. had her on June 9th in 1836. And... Many years later, they had another little girl who was named after Elias's mother. Her name was Margarita. She is the first child that the Bakers actually lost. She was around almost, I'd say almost two years years old, because it doesn't say when she contracted it. But she ended up catching diphtheria and died about a month after her birthday. She was born on December 11th, 1839, and she died... A little over two years after that, on January 14th, 1842, from uh, diphtheria. Pretty typical of that time period. It's not too many of them didn't lose a child, at least one. Yeah, but, I mean, I felt bad because, you know, a little kid at two years old, I could only imagine what she was going through and what Hetty had to go through. 1844, because they had been going through a bit of a depression around the time that uh, Anna and Margarita were born. But in about 1844, the economy started going back up, and Elias was able to buy out Roland's share, so Elias had full control of the Allegheny Furnace. And not too long after that, he bought the Indiana Iron Works, which is near, and I'm going to butcher it because I've never heard of it until I read it, Armag, Indiana County. I know somebody's going to tell me, that's not how you say it, but that's, that's my best attempt. Okay. It works for us. Not, and then not too long after that, around 18, like mid to late 1844, since he had two iron furnaces and he was like, mm, you know, I'm going to have more money come in. Maybe, maybe I want something a little bit better. And he actually contacted a um, man named Robert, Robert Carey Long Jr. to design him a new home. Because the home they had, it was like 
one and a half loaves or something like that. So it wasn't very big. And Elias wanted something bigger. And he picked long because he was one, he wasn't very well known at the time, so he'd be at least he thought he'd be able to finish the Hassan Assam. But he had he had actually done a number of houses and several churches. So he he at least had something to show Elias, hey, this is what I do. The only problem was that a lot of the stuff he did was in the Gothic style. And Elias wanted a Greek revival style home, which is basically has the columns, you know, the round columns or square columns. It's supposed to look like something you would see in Greek. What he originally sent him, it was basically a rough draft, was the main floor was supposed to have a center hall that was shortened by vestibules on either side. It was going to have a double parlor, a library, a dining room, a stair hall for the stairs to get to a second level, and a kitchen. There was supposed to be seven chambers upstairs in the second floor, and then four in the attic. He had told Elias that it would only take him four to six weeks for him to give him a more detailed plan. For whatever reason, it just didn't happen. There were delays. He'd give excuses. And Elias actually got tired of basically being given the runaround. So he contacted agents he had in Baltimore, telling them, well, you know, ask him, can you find out why he's taking so long? I need these plans and that. I need to start getting stuff put together. And eventually, they, by the end of the year, he did get another plan from him. But a few things were changed because the first floor didn't have the vestibules. And the second floor had a bath added to it. Then he can I don't know if this is Elias' idea or his, but he put the kitchen in the basement and he put the dairy room, which was where they would keep like milk and butter and stuff that had to be kept cold. That was where they kept. And behind that was an ice chamber, which is where they would bring in blocks of ice and like big, huge blocks of ice, drop it in. And the ice would melt and this cold water would come out of the hole and the wall between them. And it would keep that room cold. And they actually, you know, wasn't one of the things that were floating. They actually had a drainage system that you can still see. That leads from the basement all the way out on the ground and out to the front of the house so that the water drained out the front. So they had that. They had coal furnace. He had uh, plans for coal furnaces to be put in and a ductwork for that. There's actually, they look like fireplaces, but they're not really fireplaces because they were never used as fireplaces. They were basically uh, giant floor furnaces. Well, you know, giant floor heaters, but they were disguised to look like fireplaces. Oh. I've never heard of that in an old home like that before. Yeah, I, I didn't either because I was going on a tour. What was it, last month? I was taking a little bit of a tour in the house again because they had this tree line ceremony for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And the lady told us, told us, you know, oh, well, you know, they, the fireplaces aren't really fireplaces. They were where some of the heat would come out from the pipe. And it was just basically a big, giant furnace. The only problem is, is like she pointed out, it was coal. And coal doesn't really burn that clean sometimes, so mm. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure the employees were a little bit mad every time they kicked the furnace on. Soot everywhere. Oh yeah. And you can imagine Constantly. that was great for their lungs too. Most of them actually lived to old age. They had something that was rare in their home that most homes didn't have. Even today, we, most homes don't have this. <laughs> that in-house brick they, bake oven. Yeah, they had. It was for um, 
it's like right beside when you get out to the basement, there's a little actual fireplace for the servants to use to cook. And there's a room, like a little highway room, basically, where there's a brick oven. And that's where they would, break, they would make like bread and other baked goods that you need a brick oven for. And apparently, even though she wasn't really supposed to be doing stuff like that, because that was a service job, apparently Anna would actually go downstairs every so often and sit there and bake bread to pass the time away, because apparently she really liked to bake. Then you go on to talk about David has grown up now, and he's gotten married. Did he live in the house at all? From what I found, he wouldn't, he absolutely refused because he admitted to Elias in one of his letters that he just was not having, I mean, he'd come to visit, but he would not actually live in the house. So him and his wife, Sarah Tuckhill, actually moved to New Jersey because he, he told Elias, I'm not doing this thing, you know, I don't want nothing to do with the family business. I got my own job, my own life, and that, leave me alone. Did not want anything to do with the house or the property or anything. So, as far as I know, he stayed there when he was in college and that. He probably stayed to visit. That's as far as the one. He would not live there with his wife and later on his daughter. Okay. And unfortunately, he actually died because they had a daughter not too long after they got married. They actually had their daughter in August of 1852, because they were married in May of 1851, so it was a year after they got married, they had their only child, Louise. And she was about two weeks old when David was seriously injured in a steamboat accident. One of the boilers and the steamboat he was working on called the Reindeer actually exploded. And I thought when I first read about it, I thought, oh, you know, the explosion killed him. Well, apparently what happened was when the boiler exploded it scalded david and he lingered for a couple of days before he did actually die on september 7th and when elias and hetty found out because they found out like the next day that he had been hurt they rushed to go see him to see how he was doing and he had passed away the day before they made it so Mm -hmm. elias didn't even get to elias didn't even get to go see david to try to make amends before he died and apparently, um, a lot of people said that Sarah didn't have anything to do with the bakers. But from the book, what I read in the book, I found apparently Sarah did try to keep in contact with the bakers because she would bring Louise over to see her grandparents. So they they didn't live there, but there was still a little bit of interaction with them. And even though, from what I've read, well, from what I've heard, when David died. Sarah was going to have his body buried back in New Jersey. And Elias basically bullied her into bringing David's body back. But when his body was brought back, apparently the ground was too frozen to dig for his grave. So they had to stick him in the basement in the ice room. Oh, no. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not because I was sitting there going, well, she's in September. Why would they... Why would they have to stick his body in the ice room? And then when they were like, well, he bullied her to the point she finally gave in. I was like, maybe she just waited until it was frozen and finally gave in. And that's why they couldn't do it. I guess you got to get stuck in the ice room. Nobody drink that water. So just right there at the house? Yeah, they just, apparently they just walked his body, blowed his casket up the steps, lowered it in and left him there and told us ground was thawed enough for him to, to be taken to the cemetery to be buried. Like I said, I don't think they would have written it down, 
that might have been a rumor or something one of the employees that was angry at his Elias might have started, but that's the story they tell you, that David's body was stuck in the ice room when he died. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> and I mean, it makes sense because that would be the coldest place to keep him. I, I don't know that I would want it right off the kitchen like that, but hey. Yeah, I, I mean, can you, can you imagine somebody not being told, you know, it comes to deliver the ice and opens up the window and there's a body staring, well, a cat or something staring at you? Uh, I'd be asked questions. I'd be pounding on the door, but like, um, you, you guys know there's somebody dead in your ice room, right? Louise ended up marrying a man named Ernest and moved to Sweden, so she probably didn't have a whole lot of years to really get to know her family. Sure. You know, there's not a whole lot. You'd probably really have to dig to see how much of an interaction her and her mother had with them. Now, Anna was the living daughter because they had uh, Margarita and then she had passed away. So Anna's the only daughter that they've had live into adulthood. And her father wasn't very happy with the way her heart went. Apparently, Anna met and fell in love with one of his workers, which really isn't that surprising because, like I said, the furnace is just down the street. So it's probably one of those things. She was walking around their property. He stopped her, chit-chatted with her, and it started slowly became something more. Well, he decided he wanted to marry her, and they agreed to marry. Originally, Elias didn't know who the man was. He just knew Anna was going to get married. He was so excited that she was going to get married. And someone, I don't know who, told Elias, hey, you know it's one of your workers. It's such and such that works for you. And Elias went to Anna and told her she was not allowed to marry him, that he was lower status, you know, he wasn't going to be able to provide for her, that, you know, any horrible thing he could think of. And Anna just didn't want to hear it, kept arguing that she didn't care, she was going to marry him and everything else. And the thing that kind of set it, really set it off for both of them was Elias told her that he was too poor to afford a proper engagement ring. He thought the engagement ring she had was, you know, the cubic zirconium or something like that. He didn't think it was a real diamond. And to prove her father wrong, the story goes that Anna took her engagement ring off, turned to the window that was behind her, put the ring to the glass, and carved her initials into a pane of glass to prove Elias wrong. Are they and still there? I don't know. I didn't. I forgot to ask the last time I went, and I can't remember. They said they took them out to keep people from smashing them, mm-hmm. or if you can still see them. It's but, a cool story, though, nonetheless. I love it. That's not a real diamond. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> Let me just show you. From what I heard, like none of the Sylvester was a little bit more willing to bend his dad's will because Sylvester did take over when Elias died. He did help, try to help out as best he could. So. Uh, actually, I don't know if it was him being a little bit more willing to just agree to what Elias wanted or him going, okay, David's not coming home. Dad doesn't really know what he's doing because Elias was always racking up pets. Mom and Anna are going to end up in a poor farm or something. I got to stay here to help out with the business. From what I kind of understand, Sylvester was about the only one that Elias didn't really have problems with. Okay, and he basically probably saved the family <laughs> business. Yeah, well, David tried to help David gave Elias like tips like, hey, maybe you shouldn't do this and maybe you should do that. At one point, he actually did send a letter to Elias when he found out how much debt his dad had gone into. He actually sent a letter to Elias telling him, stop buying property. Just fix the, you know, build the house, fix the furnace and be done. There's no more buying property because you can't afford nothing. Since Anna wouldn't agree 
to ending the relationship, the rest of the story goes that Elias found the young man and pulled him to the side. Nobody really knows what happened. All anybody knows is that Anna and the man never got married, and nobody knows what happened to him. Some people said that Elias you know, pulled him to the side, offered him some money, told him to leave and never come back. And some people think that he pulled the, you know, pulled the man to the side, offered him money, told him, you know, leave my daughter alone, don't ever come back, you know, that she's not marrying you, and that the man refused, and that Elias basically told him that if he would not end the relationship since Anna wouldn't, that Anna would basically be basically be disowned and forced to work, which she wasn't used to. She'd be forced to work as a housewife. If she was not used to, you know, cleaning, cooking, and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and that she would be miserable. Basically, picture this horrible life for Anna, for this man. And because he cared so much for her, he just told her, like, you know, I don't want the money. This whole Anna, the, you know, the marriage is off and left, and nobody knows what happened to him. And how did Anna react to all of this? Anna wasn't happy at all. I assume Hetty wasn't happy either, because from what I've read, Hetty was, even though the man wasn't of their status, Hetty was happy for Anna. So when Anna found out what her father had done, she basically told her lies. If you will not let me marry the man I love, then I won't marry at all. Oh, wow. So she's like, I'm just going to be a spinster dad. Tough on you. Yep. Yep. She was like, if you won't let me, then I'll heck with it. Wow. Now, Elias didn't live much longer past this, did he? No, he died on December 5th of 1864. So... I don't know what he does from my own of his old age, if he had a health issue or something. I mean, he wasn't that old, really, but, you know, probably stress and health issues and stuff that just wasn't good for him probably finally caught up to him. Sylvester eventually had to take over the family business, and he ran it for a while. I think I read in 1880, he closed the furnace down and sold off pieces of the property to different people to like keep their money up. So a lot of the houses that are actually up along that street, if they really dig into it, they would probably find that the original owner who built that house probably bought that piece of land off of Sylvester Baker. Kenny survived Elias by a lot of years because he died in 64 <laughs> and she didn't die until 1900. And she was 96? Yeah. That's a long yeah, life back she, then. Yeah, well, it, one of those things, you know, everybody celebrates when they're not, somebody when they're 96. Um, how about we give Hetty a little credit? I mean, I don't know. Maybe she was stubborn or I don't know why, but she just, she lived until May 14th of 1900. And then Sylvester and Anna stayed in the house after her death? Yeah, Sylvester and Anna stayed in the house. A lot of people said Anna stayed despite Elias and nobody really knows why Sylvester stayed. I think it's because there's an office there. So why would he want to move somewhere else? He's already got an office set up to deal with his business. So why is he going to leave the house? Mm-hmm. And Sylvester didn't get married either. David's the only one that lived to, lived to adulthood that got married. Wow, very no, interesting. No idea, no idea why Sylvester never got married. I've never heard story if he gave a reason why, but Sylvester not got, never got married either. He passed away in the house on June 24th, seven years after Hetty died, and he actually died in the single parlor of the house. The story is is that he was sitting on the couch, and apparently he had it was late, and he decided he wanted to go to bed. And all anybody knows is that he stood up, 
get to the toilet, told him good night, stood up off of the couch, and just collapsed onto the floor. Some people said he had a heart attack, he suffered a heart attack, and I've read somewhere that he had a cerebral hemorrhage or something. Mm. So either one of those is what killed Sylvester. But he was old, so it wasn't a surprise either. Mm-hmm. Anna was actually the last baker to live and to die in that house. She died on December 20th of 1914. And apparently a lot of people actually loved her because it actually states in her uh, obituary that there were many people that would, would sincerely mourn her demise. And it talks about how she was basically, her whole life, she basically worked to help the community. She was an avid churchgoer, you know, nothing but nice things about Anna. So as far as I know, Anna was basically the baker everybody really liked up until the day she died. Well, I like her attitude, so (laughs) I can understand that. Yeah, and it it might have been too. Because when she was growing up, David had told Elias that he felt that Anna needed to go to school because Anna, for the longest time, had been taught at home. And apparently she was actually behind the other girls, like education-wise, she was behind the other girls her age. So David told Elias that he thought Anna should be going to school, an actual proper school. I don't know if Elias said no or if Elias didn't have the money, but she did eventually get to go to school. And Lawrenceville, New Jersey, and David was actually the one that paid for her to go to school. And she actually studied chemistry, geology, natural physiology, or probably still that, moral science, and apparently she could speak French. Very good. So when she died, <laughs> where, what happened to the Baker Mansion? When she died, she actually left, in her will, she left the mansion to her niece, uh, Louise. Louise either didn't want to have to deal with keeping up with the mansion or she couldn't, for whatever reason, move back to Altoona. It's probably one of the things. She was married. She was settled in. She didn't want to have to move back and forth. So she sent she sent one son to uh, manage the property for her. When he passed away, I don't really know what he passed away from because I didn't really Look, it's one of those things you see on Ancestry and stuff gets muddled. You got five people telling you five different things. So I'm not really sure what her one son died from. But he passed away, and apparently one of the houses by the Baker Mansion was actually built by him. So, so yeah, again, there's probably somebody else that has a house that was belonged to a man named A.W. Beckler. Anyway, he passed away, so Louise sent her other son to keep up with the property. And they they would let people in, you know, people could rent the mansion and all this other stuff. And eventually, the Blair County Historical Society got into contact with them because they needed someone. They wanted to have a museum. And the only place they could find that was big enough for what they had planned was the Baker Mansion. So they got into contact with Louise and her family and asked them, hey, can, you know, can we rent this out? to basically use it as a museum, you know, let people come in and look at artifacts. They had no problem with it. So in 1922, the Historical Society started renting out the Baker Mansion. The thing that actually surprises me the most, because we were going through another depression at the time, was in 1942, well, 1941 and 1942, the community actually came together and gathered up enough money for the Historical Society to actually buy the mansion off of Louise. I don't know how much they pay. I'm not sure how much they paid her for it, but 
they actually gathered up enough money and Louise let them have the mansion. What's really interesting about this property is that it basically was owned by the Baker family and they are the only family that lived in it and then it went over to the Historical Society. That's pretty amazing ownership cycle there. Yeah, and that's why a lot of times if you go, they will not really refer to Elias. I mean, they'll tell you their names, but a lot of times if you go into the mansion, they refer to Elias as Mr. Baker and they refer to Hetty as Mrs. Baker. The only time you will ever really hear them call them Elias and Hetty is when you first go in and they will show you the pictures and then the rest of the time it's Mr. and Mrs. Baker. So they actually do luckily have respect for the Bakers. I'm assuming because of this ownership line that most of the furniture that's in the house is original to it. The furniture they have, some of it is, but a lot of it either, you know, over the years it got broken by somebody and the baker sued away. Or the years, you know, the years of wear and tear and being out of the elements and that, that they start falling apart and the historical society put them away so that they you know maybe later on they can bring them back out for display because they got to be replaced they got to be repaired when you first go into the mansion you have to go into the back door and from what i heard you go into the back door because people that had business with elias would actually have to come in through the back because the front door is where the two parlors were at Mr. Baker's, well, Mr. Baker's office was in the back on the left-hand side when you come in through the door. I'm not sure, I can't remember how much of the furniture is original, but the chair and the desk that sits in his office is actually the desk and the seat that Elias actually sat in when he was looking at the paper, you know, the prices and that for his iron. The, the double parlor, I believe all of that furniture, all of that, if not most of that, is actually all Baker. And there's actually, if you look up on the wall, there's mirrors and there's the chairs match it. But they're actually carved from oak, I believe the woman said it was. The hand-carved oak from Belgium. And his, uh, Mr. Baker's one nephew actually paid $3,000 to have them built and shipped. And as far as anybody can tell, because he expected a lot, he expected the money to be given back. He never got the whole 3000 back as far as anybody knows, because that was just the way that Mr. Baker decided to do it. And now I'm starting to do the whole Mr. Baker thing. So how many they offer tours and stuff there, obviously, since you've been on a tour? I think the only time they don't offer tours is during the winter. Okay. But they, they offer tours. It's three times a day, and it's about I think it's Tuesday, Wednesday, and Saturday, something like that. It's like three to four times a week. You can get one from 11, 1, and 3 o'clock. And how I much did it cost? Website. Do you remember? When I went, it was I spent $20 for me and my boyfriend to get there. I think it's $10 okay. per person. Good. It's been a while since I actually went on an actual full-on tour. So I'm not sure how exactly they do everything. I just think that's it. Because I know when they started, it was, we'll take whatever donation you can give. And then they actually started charging people X amount of money. As is the case with so many of these mansions, particularly ones that were lived in by a large number of family members who all happened to die in the same location, <laughs> we have some spirits hanging around here, it would seem. Oh, and the most famous, I get ir- a little bit irritated at that because so many people get this wrong. 
one of the most famous stories is this wedding dress. It's not on display anymore because it's worn. It's basically been falling apart. So it's been put away to hopefully be revived. The story that irritates the reason why the story irritates me is because everybody says that it was a wedding dress that Anna Baker and Hetty Baker have picked out. And it's not Anna Baker's dress. So just to let everybody know, it wasn't Anna's dress. As far as I know, Anna never got to pick out a dress. The dress actually belongs to a woman who is named Elizabeth Dysart. I think I said that right, Dysart. She was actually the daughter of another Iron Master within the last name Bell. So I know everybody's keeping like, wait, Elizabeth Bell, yeah, I'm thinking about Back to the Bell Witch, but I don't, I don't think they're related to those bells. But <laughs> No, I'm thinking fan, not. Yeah, I thought that too. All those years, I always thought that. I was like, wait, Elizabeth Bell? I hope, oh my God. No, they, they're, but they are famous. There's actually a... um. I don't know if it is a big call a town or what it's technically classified as, but there is an area near Bay near Altoona called Bellwood, and that's actually a little town or community that the Bells founded themselves. Okay. So, th- so they are kind of famous up here, but as far as I know, they're not connected to the Bell family from the Bellwood. So no. you've got Elizabeth but, and Anna would have been kind of in the same class then of money yeah, and well, stature. As far as I know, I think the bakers started after the Bells started, but they were, you know, the Bells still kind of had money. Because I think the Bells actually shut their furnace down in 1830, so the bakers hadn't even started. But I'd have, I'd have to dig into the um, Bell family history to see. So somehow and, they have Elizabeth Bell's dress in the Baker Mansion. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. How do how did her dress get into their mansion? And then the story rooted up that it was somebody else's dress. What they'll tell you, well, what they would tell you when the dress was there is that the Bell family, you know, the descendants of Elizabeth's family didn't really understand, know that Anna and Elizabeth didn't really like each other in life. They donated the wedding dress to the Baker Mansion. You know, they said, oh, hey, you know, we have this old wedding dress. Here you go. Didn't realize that Anna and Elizabeth could not stand each other because all Elizabeth ever did was tease Anna for not getting married. So now this dress seems to be their continuing rivalry in the afterlife. What happens with this dress? The story is, is that people reported when the dress was there, they would either see one of two things happen. They would either see the dress and sometimes the shoes move, like either Anna was touching the dress, wishing she had gotten to wear something like this, or that Elizabeth is wearing the dress and dancing around and teasing Anna. The other story is, is that people have reported walking into the room and watching the case violently shake. A lot of people said that it's Anna because what the dress was at was actually like in her room. So a lot of people said that Anna was so angry at the fact that there was a dress that she never got to wear in her room that she was trying to break the case to get the dress. So, of course, we don't know if it still has activity since they've taken it off display. But what a fascinating story. Yeah, I think they said that they have it up in the attic and they're trying to see if they can fix the dress. There is another dress I kind of got a little irritated with. I know many of them listen to you like, well, that was our decision, not yours. But I got a little irritated when I went on the tour last month because they stuck another dress, well, another wedding dress in her room. Hmm. Makes you wonder if they have some activity going on with that because then you could have them getting angry because this isn't the actual dress. Yeah, it's. I don't know whose dress. I have the name written down, but I didn't 
put it on my notes. Oh, who it actually belongs to, but I was like, I was like you're really going to stick another dress in her room. That's uh, To me, that would be the equivalent of, all right, they took the dress away, stick another one in, and that's just basically... Salt on the wound. To, to, <laughs> yeah, you know, slap, you know, why don't you just spit on a grave or something, yeah. something like that. No, do they claim when they're doing the tour that that's her dress, or do they say that it's just a dress just to be there to symbolize the story? They, uh, they, when you go up to the second level where her room is at, where the dress is at, they don't really give the tours up there since, like I said, they had put most of their furniture away that was still up there that they hoped to repair and bring back. They have a, they, a picture of the couple with the woman with the dress and who it belongs to, so you know that's still not Anna's. But when they had Elizabeth Bell's dress there, they did clarify this is not Anna Baker's dress. She didn't have a wedding dress. This is Elizabeth Bell's wedding dress. And when you go on the ghost to- uh, ghost story tour, tour in October, they actually do tell you that they would tell you the story of the wedding dress. Now, there's a music box that was in the same room with the dress. Is it still in there? I think that when I saw it, I think that it was still in there. I think the only thing they removed from what I could tell was the dress. But it's supposed to play by itself. It depends on what night, depending on the story, it depends. But supposedly it will start, it'll start playing music by itself and nobody has touched it. No, nobody can figure out why it's an old wind-up box. I don't even remember if the keys in it, you know, wind-up keys in it or if they got that off somehow. But supposedly on certain nights, the music box will just start playing by itself. Mm. Now it seems that every single family member's spirit is still here too. The only one I haven't heard of for obvious reasons since she never got to live in the house and never stepped foot in the house really is Margarita. She's the only one I haven't heard sure. being in the house. People have actually, volunteers have actually reported walking into the dining room and seeing Mr. Baker sitting at the table, which is a little confusing because the table isn't actually a piece of their furniture, but the chairs are. So you got to wonder, you know, if it's basically something that's replaying itself. Is it the chairs or is he actually really sitting there? Is he really still here? Sure. There's a woman that's actually been seen dressed in black that walks around. And a lot of people actually think that it's Hetty Baker. Makes sense because she wore black for the rest of her life after Elias died. Yeah. Because she, like I said, she never got remarried. So I think Elias was it for her. Which is kind of nice to think about, but it's also not that nice because, you know, Anna never got the married man she loves. But Sarah Hetty basically figured she married the man she was going to be with and she's going to mourn him. So it's nice, but it's kind of like one of the things. Uh, Sylvester has been both heard and seen. Because when he was getting older, he needed a cane to walk around. And the employees would report that whenever he needed something, and most of the time it was at like 5 o'clock when dinner was expected, if they didn't have it up by 5 o'clock, he would get impatient and pound on the floor with his cane. A lot of the volunteers have reported hearing somebody walking around on one of the floors with a cane. And they've also reported that they will hear the sound of some the cane hitting the floor like Sylvester would do if he wanted somebody's attention. Some of them have actually apparently walked into the room to see what's going on, thinking somebody's playing a joke on him, walked in and seen Sylvester sitting on a piece of furniture before disappearing. Wow, that would be a little unnerving. <laughs> you hear something, well, you see a full-bodied apparition. Yeah, he, well, he's not mean about it. I mean, from what I've heard, none of the bakers are actually mean to the people that are in there. 
I haven't read any stories or anything of anybody getting pushed or shelled or scratched or anything bad. So just one of those things. Maybe Sylvester just wanted to let him know, hey, I'm still here. You know, don't don't forget me. The creepiest thing, well, it's not really about but the creepiest thing I've heard that has to do with Sylvester is that in the 1980s, I don't know what they have for the water system now, but back in the 1980s, they had basically pressure pads on the floors. Like, they had them all roped off so that nobody would step on them and screw up the furniture because they were still trying to preserve a lot of stuff way back then. And the story is is that every so often, they would have the pressure pads in front of the couch where Sylvester had died that they would go off. The cop would come and investigate. And there's actually stories of dogs. One time, they they got so tired of trying to find somebody and couldn't find them that they brought in a canine unit and the dog would not go into a single parlor. There's another version that says it was the attic, but I don't know why they would want it to go all the way up in the attic unless they were really searching. But the story is that the dog wouldn't go into the single parlor. He'd go into the, all the other rooms, but wouldn't go into a single parlor. Well, and, if it's a canine <laughs> unit dog, it's definitely sensing something. Yeah, probably, you know, Sylvester telling them you're not allowed in. Yeah. <laughs> or he saw yeah. him and was like, that is not a human being. I can't smell it. Yikes. Uh-huh. He, yeah, yeah, probably sitting there. Um, no, that's not right. I can see through his legs, guys. I'm done. To go with that, there's another part of the story says that one of the nights, the pads went off and it, something didn't seem right. There was something alerted him that something wasn't right. And when they checked, the pads, since they were like porcelain and they were kind of fragile, you could break them with enough force. The story is is that they found the pads broken in the shape of a human body the one night, but all the other pads were left untouched. Whoa. And it was just the pads. It was just the pads in front of the couch. That was one of the stories he told me whenever we went to the tour all those years ago and way back in third grade. He said, like it looked like somebody had literally stood up and fallen onto the floor and crushed all of the pads. Oh geez, that what, is freaky. And what is interesting about that is you think about this and you go, okay, residual. It's a repeat of him dying, totally residual, except for the reaction of the plates is not residual. Something is hitting them and breaking them. So that's one of those things that blows my mind because residual, I usually don't think has any kind of mass or form or realness to it, that it's just kind of a misty type thing that's replaying itself or something projecting out like a movie projecting onto a screen. And so how is something that's projecting physically breaking plates? That is weird. Because it's not really residual. And for people like you, it's like, look, I'll prove it. (laughs) Just kidding. Now, the basement is haunted too, right? This is where they had David's body down there. Yeah, would haunted if they put me on ice. A lot of people say that he haunts it because his wishes weren't met. Because Elias did not follow his wishes. David isn't happy. People have actually reported like at night and sometimes during the day when there's nobody else there, people have actually reported hearing somebody screaming at the top of their lungs from the basement. And a lot of people have actually said, it's David letting everybody know, you know, my wishes weren't met. My dad didn't do what I wanted. I'm not happy. That's got to be creepy as heck, hearing screams from the ice room. And apparently, because I looked a little bit more into this, Apparently, people have actually seen David, that doesn't say anything, doesn't do nothing to him, but people have actually reported seeing David in his steamboat uh, uniform in the basement. The only explanation I could come up for the other story for the basement 
that concerns the ghost is because Sylvester had a ghost. Sylvester was drafted into the Civil War. Elias paid a young man off so that Sylvester didn't go because he didn't want his only son being killed. The story is that a tour guide was, you know, taking this group around and that there was a mother and her son that were in the tour group. Nobody acted weird, nothing weird happened until they got to the basement. The story is is that the little boy took one look down the steps and started screaming and shouting at the top of his lungs like full-on bawling, would not go. By the time they got him calmed down enough to ask him what, you know, what was wrong, he described seeing a man down there. And he described a man in a union uniform. And they asked him, well, why were you scared? And he said, because he found the ba- basically they, he told him that the soldier did not want them down the basement, that he was sitting at the bottom of the steps and glaring up at the tour group. That Elias had basically paid off a young man to take Sylvester's place, and maybe he didn't make it. Okay. Now he's got a bone to pick with Elias. Sure. Well, that's a possibility. <laughs> yeah, that would make sense. The other actual haunted place I found. I didn't know until I actually dug into it because I kind of got a weird feeling from it when I went on my tour last month was the attic. Apparently, a lot of people don't have a good feeling up in the attic. It's about the only room in the whole house that people always do, always report having a bad feeling in the attic and that for whatever reason, they they hear a little child giggling and playing around in the attic. Do they know who the little child might be? I tried to look to see if maybe one of the employees had one of their kids up there and that's about all anybody can guess because Sylvester and David were too old to be little kids so that's a possibility because so the they had a lot of staff yeah. so the best I could guess is it was a staff an employee's child or maybe yeah maybe it was a kid that was stuck to one of the artifacts that people bring in to display for the for historical society but no, nobody really knows if you really say anything about the little child in the attic. A lot of the people, like a lot of people, work there will deny it and say, "Oh no, no, there, there should be no little boy in this house." You know, none of the bakers were young enough, and all so and so forth. So nobody knows. Now they have a garden I, that's beside the house that they keep in honor of Hetty oh. because it had been hers. Yeah, there. It's when you go up the driveway. It's on the right side. It's not very big. It's just like a little flower garden. You know, something for her to do. And people have reported going into the flower bed. You know, going into the flowers, looking at the flowers and that, and turning and look at the looking up at the window and seeing a woman standing in the window and watching them. Which I never really garden, but I'm pretty sure if I had a garden and I saw somebody in my garden, I'd be watching them to make sure they don't do nothing to my flowers. A store. It doesn't happen in. The mansion itself, it's another one that happened outside. From the way I remember it, and it, like in some of these ways, like years ago, and they got lost in the internet and that, there was a woman that was visiting a friend and either got lost or her car broke down or something, and it was in around the big mansion area. And the story goes that she looked around, didn't see any lights on except for up in the mansion. So she gets out of the car, walks up the hill, because she was in, fr- in the front of the house, and she knocks on the door, telling them that she needs help. Well, she could hear people in there, but they weren't responding to her, thinking she that they didn't hear her, because she figured, you know, the walls and the door are kind of thick, I've got to be a little louder. She knocks louder and yells out to him, you know, I need help, he, can you help me? Nobody answers, and she starts, she gets really mad, starts pounding on the door, yelling at them to let her in, she needs help. And the next thing she knows while she's waiting for a response, somebody knocks on the door from the other side and starts laughing at her. 
So she's not very happy. She storms down the hill, you know, figuring, all right, they're going to be rude. Storms down the hill, finds help somewhere else. She goes to the mansion the next day, and she's basically complaining to the director that, you know, all your employees are so rude. They didn't help me, and I, I need help in all this. And the director goes, what time were you here? And she tells them, and he goes, they go, well, none, none of the employees were here. The volunteers leave at like 5 o'clock or something. And she, you know, still yelling, screaming at the top of her lungs. And the director basically apologizes and says, the only people that would have been in this house were the bakers. And Anna Baker died in 1914. <laughs> and I can't control And I can't control what they do. So they didn't want to let you in. <laughs> we don't employ the ghosts, so I can't yeah. help you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is their house, so... I'm pretty sure if we told lies what to do, we'd be getting stuff thrown at us. So you, you, you're on your own. And supposedly the lady just looked, took one look at the dresser and left. That would pretty much shut me up. I'd be like, okay, now I'm freaked out because I'm so angry because I know I heard people inside that house. And she's telling me nobody was there. At least nobody living was there. I'd be like, nah, yep, nope, I'm out of here. Tell my friend, don't ever let me go back there. That's like at night, like at night, if I have to walk past the mansion, I will not walk on the same sidewalk. I walk across the street from it. Even if I have to, even if I look stupid and like make a wide little view, for whatever reason, I do not like walking in front of that mansion at night. So I I have to give her some credit. If the story's true, I have to give that lady some credit for walking up to the mansion at night. Yeah. yeah so what is it? Is it just because you know the stories or do you get a feeling when you get near the mansion? It's a little bit of both. It's because I know the stories and because of, like, I just get, like, this feeling I don't want to really, I mean, I'll go there in the day, but for whatever reason, I just don't like walking in front of it at night. Now, you shared a story about an experience that you think you had inside the mansion. (laughs) Yeah, it happened almost 10 years ago, and I still debate with myself every single day if it actually happened to me. So about 10 years ago, I'd gone to the mansion because I graduated from high school. Finally graduated and I'm done with school. I didn't know if I was going to go to college. Unfortunately, I never did because I didn't have the money. But, you know, I'm done with, finally done with school and I go to the mansion. Always been a tradition of me and my dad to go to the mansion where I graduated sixth grade, ninth grade, and so on. Well, my dad didn't want to go that day. He told me he didn't really like, I don't know why, he said he never really liked going into the mansion all that much, and that he felt that I was old enough to pay for my own way, because he always paid, but this time I had to pay myself. So, I go into the mansion, but I was so early, I was the only one. I thought there was more people, because I'd seen cars, so I thought there was going to be more people, and apparently it was just the volunteers' cars, because I was the only one other than the tour guide was in the actual group. So, Nothing really happened, you know. I think the worst thing up until that point was when I stepped on the floor, it scared my poor tour guide because it squeaked right by her. And I was like maybe two or three feet away, so it kind of spooked her a little bit. That was about the worst up until I got to the basement. I mean, it's a little bit better now, but back then I really didn't like going into the basement. I had two nightmares when I was growing up about the basement where basically I was in the dairy room and I had like knives or something. I mean, I don't know where it came from. I had like knives or something coming at me. So I didn't like the basement. And back then when they gave full on tours of the mansion, they said just in the first floor and then you can do whatever you want. They 
would say and take you to a whole mansion and then he went and ended in the basement where the gift shop was. And they did a tour of the basement and that and we get to where the gift shop was at in time and the employee gets Oh, I forgot the keys for the register. I gotta go get the key for the register off of my boss. I'll be right back. All right, I, I didn't mind because I wanted to get some stuff. So I'm, you know, browsing around looking to see if there's what all I wanted to get. And while I'm looking, I swore I heard a man's voice asking me, "What are you doing down here?" Yeah, I, I'm thinking, you know, I'm in trouble. A tour guide's in trouble. Maybe I'm not supposed to be here down, uh, down here by myself without somebody else here. So I look up thinking it's maybe a male volunteer and there's nobody there. I'm saying, all right, you know, I don't like the basement. I already know the stories about this place. I'm making all this up in my head. And I go back to... um. That's a lot of words, though, to hear. If it was like, hi, I could see, yeah. oh, maybe I just heard that hi, but what are you doing here? That's quite a few words to just uh, make up in your head. It's one of those things, depending on who you ask, you know what I mean? It's just not haunted or it isn't, you know, it is or isn't. You don't want to sound crazy to some people, so I'm going to stay and think I'm going crazy. So I go back and I'm looking at some of the, some more of this stuff and I'm picking up some of the things I want. And I feel, I think I was looking at the bookmarks because they used to have bookmarks that you could buy that had like oh, basically little snippets of, um, the different bakers, you know, the information about the lives in that. And I'm looking at the bookmarks to see if they have one for Anna, because I wanted to get the one on her. And I feel this, like, it felt like somebody coming up towards me and stood, I'd say, maybe a, less than a foot away from me, like, as close as they could, standing right behind me, going, I said, what are you doing down here? Oh, jeez. Automatically, yeah, automatically, I'm standing there going, oh, my God. I'm standing up stiff. I'm afraid to turn around because I don't know if I'm going to see something. And, you know, I don't know if, you know, if, if I'm going to like what I see. And basically, then I get the question. I said, what are you doing in my house? I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. This is either Sylvester or Elias. I'm not making this up in my head. It's one of them, and they don't want me here. And I instantly went from being petrified that I'm going to get, you know, pushed or something to being irritated because, I, okay, I'm a guest at your house and now you're going to be rude to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, maybe if I just think something to myself, it'll stop, it'll, you know, it'll go away and I'll be able to, I'll be done with this because I'm just going crazy. Now, th- this isn't really happening. So I thought to myself, I basically told him, you know, I'm a guest at your house. I'm only ever coming to this house because I love being in this mansion. And you're going to basically come up and almost bum rush me and be mean and ignorant and everything else to me. You know, I basically told him that I wanted to, I just want to get my stuff, you know, buy, buy the stuff I have picked out. I don't leave. Leave me alone, back off. Leave me alone, you know, get out of my face, basically. And I'll leave. And all I heard was basically signs. As soon as, you know, I'll leave you alone, I'll back off. As soon as you get your stuff bought, as soon as you buy your stuff, get out. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that, that's what I was like, oh, I hope I was just going crazy to them. They were rude to me. That's, so I felt them back, you know, kind of felt like they were back. And also I could still kind of feel like they were watching me mm-hmm. to make sure I was actually going to leave. So poor guy comes back, oh, you know, oh, I'm sorry that I took so long and apologizing, turns the register on. I'm standing there going, don't freak out, don't freak out. Like, I'm shaking a little bit. 
And I'm like, don't don't freak out and don't start with the ghost stuff because I don't know if she thinks there's ghosts in here or not. Rick, get rung up, hey. And as soon as she hands me the bag, I took the bag and I basically ran as fast as I could. I think I took the steps to go from the basement back out to the outside, like two at a time. <laughs> ran down, ran down the driveway. I stopped about halfway and I turned just to see if maybe, no, 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 maybe it's safe to turn around to see if I saw something. Luckily, I didn't because I'm pretty sure I just would have just like had a trail behind me on my way home. Yeah, but you don't want to turn around and, and see an apparition, so it's like better not to look, right? Yeah, no, I, like, I don't know if I'm going to see somebody, but I turned around and didn't see anybody. I was like, all right, I'm still getting off this property as fast as I can, but now I know I'm not being followed. What's interesting about but, this is obviously people are coming in and out of that house constantly on tours and visiting. So why all of a sudden are they upset with you unless it was just that you were this young person that they didn't know standing in their house and they're familiar with the volunteers, but not you. So it's like they were just keeping an eye on you. What are you doing, kid? What I think it was, because I've been there, I've actually been there a couple of times before that incident. I think what it was was maybe if it was a liar, maybe he got the feeling because ever since I was little, whenever I found out the story how he treated Anna when he found out who she wanted to marry, I'd always basically said, I got, you know, when we die, if we can get where we want, I'm going to come back to the Baker Mansion and I'm going to have words with Mr. Baker. I'm going to tell him how I feel about what he did to Anna. And I was 18 years old and I think if it was a lie, he was like, well, you're an adult now, so guess what? I can do whatever I want to you and there ain't nothing you can do about it because you're not a little kid anymore. You're a grown adult, so I guess we better start having words, huh? And... I don't think I did a very good job. So you were tempting the spirits? Be, yeah, I got, <laughs> I got realized that years later. I was like, oh, crap. Nothing's happened to me since. I mean, I've never gotten a feeling of get out kind of thing anymore. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they just don't recognize, you know, realize it's me. Or if they realize it's me, and they're like, oh, all right, she, you know, she's not going to do nothing. But the only, the only thing I've ever felt, like I said, with the attic when I went for the tour last month, mm-hmm was you're not allowed in the attic unless you, I think you have to be a volunteer. I know it's a volunteer, and I think if you're an actual member of the Historical Society, it might be wrong in that part, but you are not allowed in the attic. you like normal uh, tourists are not allowed in the attic. And when I went to the tree line ceremony, I ended up getting separated from my boyfriend. He went off in the one room. I didn't see what room he went to, so I'm wandering around trying to find him. And I stopped right where the stairway is at to go up and down the floors. And I'd seen one of the guys, like one of the volunteers, coming down the steps. And I'm staying there trying to figure out you know, where my boyfriend's at. And I'm looking up at the attic. And I'm thinking, well, I, you know, up there's the attic. Because you can't see the door. And I was like, I wish I could go in there and see what's up there just once. And all I heard was, no, you don't. You don't want up there. What? I was like, what, what, why wouldn't I want up there? I just had this feeling like, no, believe me, you just don't want up there. And two days later, that's when I found out apparently a lot of people have very bad feelings about that attic. Attics bother me all the time anyway. Attics and basements are never good. (laughs) Tiffany, thank you so much for sharing about Altoona and the Baker Mansion. Your research is really thorough. (laughs) We greatly appreciate you sharing so much of this with us. And these are great ghost stories that go with the mansion as well. Yeah. Yeah. This is one place that I would like to see in real life. It sounds gorgeous. Uh, that would oh, be yeah, very cool. 
Yeah, you need to see, like, the actual... There's so many things that it would take me basically all night to tell you every little thing that the mansion actually has. Some of it was when Elias was alive, but some of it, like, the plague drink. They did eventually get plumbing into the house after he passed away and lights. But it's one of the things you actually have to go in to see because it's a little hard to describe all of the stuff he had put in. Well, it sounds like a, a big, beautiful house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now I kind of want to go back. Every time I talk about it or see anything about it, that's when I kind of want to start going back to go see it. We have a great night. Thank you so much again, Tiffany. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. See ya. Bye. All right. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Have members of the Baker family decided to stay behind in their former home after their deaths? Are the strange noises heard supernatural or just the creaking of an old house? Is the Baker mansion haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, that was great. Tiffany was just full of information about the family and the house, so we appreciate her joining us. Absolutely. We encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did get an email from Christina. We stayed at the Low Hotel in Point Pleasant Saturday, December 9, 2017. We stayed in what was called the Haunted Suite, room 316. Nothing happened to us. The room reminded me of my grandma and made me want to keep everything very clean. The hotel is beautiful. I took so many pictures. Most of the rooms were open that weren't being used so we could walk in and look around. Each room is decorated differently. The room across from us just looked creepy. It had the creepiest pictures on the wall. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. There is Eden Park near downtown that has a haunting. I forget the names, but in the 20s, a man ran his wife off the road and killed her. She supposedly haunts the area she died in. My husband was riding his bicycle by that area late one night, and his light fell off, and it was clamped on with a screw. Scared the crap out of him. He rode home very fast. I can't remember if he stopped to find his light or not. I doubt he did. We got a comment on the website from Bill. You two ladies do a bang-up job. I'm a big history buff and paranormal fan. I'm also a sensitive. I've had experiences since I was a child. I'm always checking out anything to do with the paranormal because it's nice to hear stories from other people. Makes me feel less crazy to know I'm not alone. For years, I ignored the gift and found that a lot of alcohol blocked it. Then one day, after coming back from Desert Storm, I stopped drinking and it all came back. Anyway, thanks for what you do and keep it up. Ever need any ideas? Contact me. There's a lot of hauntings here in Logan, Utah. Well, thank you, Belle, for your service in Desert Storm. And uh, we'd love to hear some of your stories about some of the things that you've picked up being a sensitive. We'll definitely add some hauntings in Logan, Utah to the list. We had an amazing response to our first live show in Louisville, Kentucky. I believe the Waverly tour that we're going to do afterwards is almost full, but we still have spaces left for the live show. And that's going to be us, History Goes Bump, Mike Brown with Pleasing Terrors, and Jerry and Tracy of Hillbilly Horror Stories. We would love to see you in Louisville on April 28th. 2018. And make sure you go and register because this is a ticketed event. Yeah, so a lot of people have gotten on board for Waverly Hills, but you haven't bought your ticket for the live show. And that's the way to do a meetup with us. We're not doing a meet and greet or anything at Waverly Hills. We're just a part of the tour there. So if you want to see us live, we're each going to do our own little deal for about 20 minutes. We'll do a Q&A and then you get to do a meet and greet with us, get pictures, autographs, whatever you want to do. Have to be at the live show to have that. We won't be doing any of that at Waverly Hills. We would love to meet any of you guys that are in the area. We're really looking forward to it. 
Yeah, I heard we're supposed to eat a hot brown sandwich when we go there. Hot brown sandwich. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm not. Do I want to know what it is? I don't know. I just, I asked guests what we're supposed to have. And that's what I was told. And his daughter told me fish sticks. Fish sticks. Okay. From and a child, how old was his daughter? <laughs> like six, you know, so you have to get the perspective of a child. So hot brown sandwiches and fish sticks in Louisville, Kentucky or Louisville. I can't say it right. We have some reviews from Apple Podcasts. First one is from Cobwellick. Very fun show. Five stars. After discovering this podcast more than a year ago, binge listening to every episode to get caught up and then becoming an executive producer, I'm finally getting around to writing a review. I love the stories Diane and Denise tell. You can tell they enjoy working together and on this podcast. Plus, they're able to genuinely connect with their audience and make everyone feel like a part of their community. These ladies put a lot of hard work and research into their tales of potentially true hauntings and have helped me put together quite an impressive list of places I'd like to visit. Keep up the good work. I look forward to more tales of the haunted and macabre for 2018, and we do have a lot of great ones coming for you. Yes, we do. Mr. Kuhal, highly recommended five stars, great podcast, nice mix of history and the paranormal. And Rebel Spitfire, history with a bump in the night feel, five stars. I love the facts and fun insights I learned from this podcast. It has a great community feel and is fun for all ages. I also love that it's about the supernatural, but isn't gory or too scary. Thank you for those reviews. We greatly appreciate them. We want to thank you all for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Ariel Schroeder and Holly Lockwood. Thanks. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us. <laughs>